Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast with me, Simon Maybon. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Courtney Freer, a research fellow at the Middle East Center at the LSE. Courtney is someone whose, whose work is absolutely fascinating and gets right at the heart of a number of contemporary issues across Gulf politics and the Middle East more broadly. Her book, Rentier Islam, The Influence of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gulf Monarchies, based on her PhD, has been published by Oxford University Press in 2018, and it's an absolutely fascinating read, looking at the, the socio-political role of the Brotherhood across the Gulf, and well worth a read. So, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in, in working in these, these areas more broadly? What, what drew you into studying political science in the Middle East? Sure. I mean, I guess I, I started with studying Arabic in Cairo back way back over a decade ago, um, and then kind of from there became interested in the Gulf specifically, I think, um, largely through through an internship I ended up having in D.C. I was working for the U.S.-Saudi Business Council, right. and so had a lot of experience talking about kind of the political economies of the Gulf states. Um, and at the same time, I was also interested in Islamism kind of elsewhere in the Middle East. So then when I moved to, to Doha, um, in 2010 to work for the Brookings Institute out there, um, I ended up thinking, you know, why why haven't why hasn't someone combined these two, um, looking at kind of frontier political economies and uh, Islamists and, and how Islamists function inside of those environments? Because I felt that a lot of the, the literature focusing on rentier states has to do with political economies or sure. security yeah. um, rather than kind of domestic politics and, and especially ideological politics. Yeah, of course. I think you've you've identified a really important gap there, and it, it's good that you're you're going about filling it. But what was it about the Gulf that that really piqued your interest? I, I think I I felt that at least when I was doing my masters, a lot of the the literature we talk about when when we study the Gulf, you have kind of one week in a comparative political science class, and it's just about rentier state theory. So it's sure. this idea that no taxation, no representation summarizes the entirety of political life inside of these states. And I just felt that that's, you know, far too simplistic. And I think in the time since I, I finished up my master's, of course, there's been a lot more work done on kind of adding nuance to rentier state theory, I think, especially in the past kind of decade. Um, but I think that that was kind of, I felt that it was incomplete. I felt that there needed to be more done there. And specifically, I thought, you know, the Gulf is seen as exceptional from other parts of the Middle East because yeah. it has these oil rents. And so I wanted to see and still want to see kind of to what extent it actually is exceptional. I mean, the same ideologies that we see elsewhere in the Middle East are also at play in the Gulf. And so do these rents actually make them fundamentally different from neighboring states in the in the Middle East? Right. Really, really interesting stuff. So you went to Doha. Is that before your PhD or is that after? Uh, that was before my PhD. So okay. I finished um, my master's at George Washington um, and then went to Doha to work for Brookings. And it was while I was there, I was there from 2010 to 2012. And so everyone was talking about Islamists and the Muslim Brotherhood and sure. uh, you know uprisings, obviously, everywhere um, at that time. And so it just I, I just started thinking, well, why has no one looked at this in, in for instance, the Qatari context or the Emirati, the Kuwaiti? I mean, the Kuwaiti, there's a bit more work done. But I just felt that there was a bit of a gap there. And so that was kind of what spurred me then to, to apply to do my PhD. Um, and I did that after I left Doha. 
Right. So then you went to Oxford, and then you started really looking in detail at at uh, the the. How would I frame it? The the role of Islamists within rentier politics is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess I just wanted to see kind of what exactly do brotherhood groups do in these kinds of environments? Because right. I mean, we a lot of the literature talking about brotherhood movements elsewhere, and I had done a master's thesis about the brotherhood in Jordan. And a lot of that literature has to do with the services provided by the brotherhood to people, and that sure. then mobilizes yeah. support. Exactly. And so when you don't have that for a potential support base, how then do they mobilize um, followers? And so that was something that I, I was really interested in looking at in the Gulf. And then if you add in the fact that in a lot of the, most of the Gulf states, I mean, there is no active parliaments, uh, elected parliaments, then what, what exactly do these Islamists do? And so I kind of wanted to trace the history of of the Brotherhood in what I call kind of the super rentier states of Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE, which are the places we would least expect to see any independent Islamist movements, and then kind of see what exactly they do then in these types of environments. Sure. So, I mean, that's really fascinating. And before we get on to looking at the the difference in the in the states, could you tell us a little bit broadly about about what what it is that they do then? Because as mm. you say, I mean. You look at the the, the Brotherhood in, in Egypt and in Jordan. They they based their raison d'être on the provision of services. That was that that was their essence. That was how they derived their legitimacy. But if the state is doing that, then then what does that leave them with? Right. Yeah. I, I think it ultimately leaves them with uh, providing ideological inspiration. There's this idea that I think especially in the states that I looked at, modernization has has been accompanied by, I think, um, uh, secularization and westernization, at least to a certain degree. And so it leaves a space for Islamist ideology to be quite appealing, I think. Um, And so I think it mobilizes from that kind of ideological appeal. Um, That said, I mean, what's also interesting is that these three states I looked at, though they look quite similar at the outset, have very different function in terms of brotherhood uh, movements there. So in Kuwait, for instance, the brotherhood does uh, contest parliamentary elections and is very active in electoral politics and so uh, ends up being a a more active, more overtly political actor than in Qatar and the UAE. In those cases, I think that really uh, was more of a social club, so provided people with a space to study the Quran, to send their kids for camps, to have kind of social interactions, which were kind of tinged with this support for conservative Islam, um, which I think is appealing, as I said, in these states, especially these states where there are expatriate majorities. And so there is a a sense that I think, at least among certain segments of the population, that Islamism or or religiosity is a a means of expressing expressing nationalism. Right. So... I I take it that that this is obviously inspired by by the sort of the traditional if you will brotherhood movements in in Egypt and Jordan. Um yes, so this is another thing that I was always confused about is everyone talks about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood as kind of this one massive conglomerate. And I think really what I found was the extent to which the brotherhood at least at, at present is very much localized. So if you look at the agenda of the Kuwaiti Brotherhood, for instance, it's very focused on um, issues relevant to Kuwaiti voters, um, which wouldn't really translate across borders. And so I think we see the extent to which this idea of, of transnational, of a transnational Muslim Brotherhood uh, that's kind of monolithic, it really doesn't make sense anymore. 
that's that's really quite interesting. So, so if just I guess moving aside slightly, if we were to look at these these different groups, and and you were to remove the name of them, what would so we we talk about let's say in the abstract groups one, two, and three, would we see any real similarities? Do you think? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, th- I think the similarities, there there is this kind of idea that they go back to the, the work of Hassan al-Banna and kind of this ideology that Islam is should be a part of every aspect of life. So sure. social life, political life, etc. But of course, that's very vague. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. um, it's a massive kind of ideology. And I think that's the reason that these groups can look so different in different places. And the reason it also gives them a lot of flexibility in terms of structure and function as well. Because if if the the broad message is essentially that uh, Islam is holistic, Islam is kind of the solution in terms of kind of every aspect of life, then these groups can look very, very different uh, depending on political context, social context, etc. Yeah, and... <laughs> I guess this is this is one of the issues that that a number of Islamist groups are facing in the sense that the the sort of the the words of Albana can very easily be sort of translated as anachronistic, right? That yes. that it doesn't necessarily easily apply to to the contemporary world. So, do we see more sort of contemporary thinkers emerging that that have influence across these groups? I mean, I, I think Anushi is is someone who people often refer to um, right, as yeah. kind of someone modernizing the, the Brotherhood movement in general. I mean, and I guess he has used this label of Muslim Democrat rather than Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, and that's something that's taking hold. I think also in, in Morocco, there's this move away from using the label of the Muslim Brotherhood, and even in Qatar, um, the leader of the Brotherhood there, when it did exist, Jassim Sultan, has his own group called Nahda, also, um, though it's not related to Ghanoushi's Nahda, but yeah. uh, his whole idea is that really this ideology of Albana needs to be modernized. Um, and it's unclear kind of how exactly that's happening, but I think there is there are a lot of people trying to, to do that, trying to make it more applicable to the present day and also to specific uh, social and political environments. Right. So how does that differ across the Gulf then? What, what were the main differences that you saw from, obviously, the, the Kuwaiti um, parliamentary electoral system to the 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 more um, traditional rentia model of the of the Emirates, would you say? Mm. Well, I think in the Kuwaiti case, we see how electoral politics change um, the dynamics and the priorities of Islamist groups. So, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood, at least initially, focused a lot on social issues, um, things like um, banning alcohol, talking about dress codes, things of that nature. And today, when you look at the Kuwaiti Brotherhood's agenda, it has to do with fighting corruption, with uh, bringing back uh, citizenship for people whose uh, citizenship was removed for political reasons. Um, creating a political parties law. So these issues are very much political um, rather than focused on social policy. Um, Whereas I think when you look at uh, Qatar and the UAE, the focus is more on social policy. It's more on things like um, dress codes, like uh, the availability of alcohol, the issues with um, education being too secular or too westernized. So it's much more socially focused than overtly political, I would say. And I guess that that says a great deal about state society relations and and social contracts more broadly, right? 
Yeah, certainly. I think I think it shows kind of, uh, of course, these social policy moves are also political in nature because it demonstrates what these groups expect of their governments. They expect of their governments that they preserve certain Islamic values, whatever that means. Um, and so they are they are political, but they're expressed in kind of the social sphere, at least in places like Qatar and the UAE, where you don't have an elected legislature, so you don't have the same um, political landscape as you have in Kuwait, for instance. Right. It's, it's really, really interesting. Uh, just reflecting on, on how you did this for a minute, can you tell us a bit about how you, how you went out to the Gulf and, and the sort of the ways in which you overcame what I imagine were some quite serious challenges in doing this work then? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I spent about, I did about a hundred interviews in total. So I spent about three months in each of the three countries. Right. Um, of course, I'd lived in Qatar for uh, over two years before that. So I kind of knew, sure. knew more people there than, than in the other states. So I, uh, I went first to Qatar um, and interviewed uh, a lot of a lot of Islamists, um, people linked to the Brotherhood movement, academics. Um, and it, I'm lucky in that the Gulf states are the Gulf states I looked at are small, so it's a, a relatively small community, and so yeah. it's a bit easier um, to connect with people, um, not only inside of countries but also across borders. Um, and so then uh, I went to Kuwait and the UAE, uh, and I think in Kuwait it's probably the the easiest environment for for this kind of work because the Brotherhood is overtly organized. Um, in both Qatar and the UAE, there's no longer uh, a, a formal structure of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so that made it a little bit more difficult. Um, whereas in Kuwait, there's, of course, a, a Brotherhood headquarter. So it's yeah. much easier to, to get information and to gain access to people who will say that they are members of the Brotherhood. And and that, in, particularly in, in Doha and, and across the Emirates, that must have been quite not only a logistical challenge, but also a somewhat risky proposition as well. Uh, yes, it was It was uh, a bit awkward at times. I think, especially in the UAE, there was, uh, there was a lot of vitriol about the Muslim Brotherhood and about yeah. kind of conflating any type of Islamist group, whether Brotherhood or, or otherwise, with ISIS, essentially. Sure. Um, so I think there, that was, it was difficult to get people to talk about kind of the Brotherhood specifically. Um, I was also surprised... The, the extent to which people were hesitant to label themselves as members of the Brotherhood, even in a place like Qatar, which gets so much press for being, you know, I think someone called it a mini Iqwanistan. So, <laughs> right. I mean, I think I, I also came across this trouble uh, of labeling, I think, in the Qatari case in particular, sure. where people may agree with, for instance, what Sheikh Karadawi says on TV um, and may, you know, from my point of view, be brotherhood, but they would never call themselves that. So are they just kind of conservative Muslims? Are they Wahhabi? I mean, it, there's a, a difficulty in labeling that comes into play. Yeah, I can certainly imagine. So what do you think this this does for debates on Islamism more broadly then? How do you how do you think that that those those uh, scholars working on this, what what impact has your your work had on those discussions, do you think? Mm, well, I, I think it's shown that the flexibility of Islamist groups to function in very different and very difficult uh, political and social environments. So yeah. even in places where they're under a lot of scrutiny, especially in the UAE, they still kind of manage to function at least to a certain extent. Uh, I think it also shows that 
their mobilizing capacity doesn't just come from provision of services, which I think a lot of the literature before had kind of sure. um, suggested the, the centrality of the, the material. And I think really this, what I talk a lot about is the power of ideology, uh, at least in these kinds of environments, because there's not really any other reason that someone would, would follow a, a brotherhood movement if, if there are no elections and they're not receiving anything materially. So that kind of left me with, with ideology. So um, so I think that's that's something that I, I'm kind of promoting in terms of study of, of Islamists more generally. I think that that's really important. I think that, that as, as scholars, particularly in, in political science and related disciplines, we're all too quick to dismiss the, the importance of ideas and ideology and to, to dismiss belief and faith as a sort of instrumental. But it is in itself something incredibly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's something that I've, I've argued with a lot of, of friends and colleagues about, but I do maintain that there is this kind of centrality of faith and ideology, not just as an instrumental factor, but really in, in the mobilizing capacity. And I mean, this is something I saw even, you know, growing up in, in the Bible Belt, so this right, kind of mobilization yeah. through social groups, which um, are related to churches, for instance, and then this social mobilization does have some political uh, consequences, I would, I would say. Yeah, certainly. I wonder, in terms of broader context and narratives, how does um, how do regional affairs feed into this? And in particular, how does the sort of the rising anti-Shia sentiment, particularly across the Gulf, shape the position of of Islamist groups? Would you say? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it too much. Um, Sorry, I'm putting you on the there, spot now. There's this um, this idea that essentially it's. It, it, while the, the Sunni Islamist groups are seen as kind of enemy number one, perhaps mostly during kind of the Arab Spring, now there is this idea that Iran and Shia groups are m- more dangerous um, in a sense. So I, I think that could lead to, I mean, a dynamic like we see in Bahrain, for instance, where the Brotherhood is very closely associated with the ruling family, is very much loyalist, um, and so that could change dynamics in terms of relationships between Sunni Islamist groups and and governments in, in those states. Um, but that said, I mean, it's in, in Kuwait, for instance, you have the, the Shia Islamist groups are very much associated as being loyalist to the government. So um, it's it kind of depends case by case, but I guess it will also we'll see kind of to what extent the rhetoric against uh, Shia Islamists and against Iran ramps up in in the coming months. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, context is key then. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more about the Bahrain case? Just, I think it's it's absolutely fascinating in terms of the 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 close relationship between Al Khalifa and Al Saud, and the the close sort of alliance between the Saudis and the Bahrainis more broadly. But yet, the Bahrainis have been so so reliant in many ways on the Muslim Brotherhood in terms of their electoral politics, which seems at odds with the Saudi position. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a bit awkward because yeah. uh, it, while you have Saudi Arabia and the UAE saying that the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization, in many ways the Bahraini um, ruling family relies on Sunni Islamist groups, not just the Brotherhood, but also Salafis um, for political support. And I think the, the way that the rhetoric that's been used to justify this is that the Brotherhood inside of Bahrain is not part of the transnational Muslim Brotherhood. Right. So they're basically arguing that this is a different uh, local entity, which is interesting. Interesting in and of itself that that's kind of 
the the idea put forward because it seems to me that that the the arguments against the brotherhood at least on the the Saudi Emirati side is essentially that this is a transnational movement trying to create a caliphate um yeah what's interesting is also the the Bahraini brotherhood's rhetoric in response to um moves against the brotherhood in other countries they've been pretty supportive of uh of kind of moves against the brotherhood elsewhere so they're kind of trying to divorce themselves from this transnational movement and again say that they are just a local entity which is really interesting i mean looking at their statements you see the extent to which they are really aligned with with the interests of the ruling family yeah and and that's that's fascinating how they can hold such a a political and ideological position of of I guess supporting crackdowns on what is their own organization. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and also, I mean, I think we saw in the the most recent election in November that the the brotherhood has very limited support inside of Bahrain right now. I mean, yeah. they, they didn't win any seats, and I think that's the first time since the creation of their political arm that that's the case. Um, so maybe this idea that they they don't have an independent agenda. Uh, aside from loyalism to the the government, uh, hurts them electorally is also interesting. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating, and I guess there's there's so much more that we could talk about in terms of the the minutiae of particular contexts across the Gulf and 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 so many other factors. But Courtney, I'm conscious we've taken up a great deal of your time already, so so I want to just say thank you so much for for speaking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I I really do urge anyone who's not already read it to to pick up a copy of your book. It's absolutely fascinating, and I look forward to to reading more of what you do in the coming years. Oh, thank you so much. I it's appreciate been, it. It's been a pleasure having you on, Courtney. Thanks, my pleasure. Thanks. Until the next time. <laughs> Thanks.